0: Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeff Lumcooler, Extension Beef Cattle Specialist at the University of Kentucky. Through the Beef Bits Podcast, we will deliver current news, management tips, new research, and other issues related to beef production. I'll be joined by various guests to bring different views and insights on the topics we're discussing I hope you will follow or subscribe to the Beef Bits podcast and find the information useful for your operation. Today, I'm joined by my esteemed colleagues, Dr. Dare Bullock, Dr. Les Anderson, Mr. Kevin Laurent, and Dr. Katie Van Valen, All Extension Beef Specialists at the University of Kentucky. Les, how are you doing today? Doing great, Jeff. How are you? Doing fine. So, uh, what's happening over in your neck of the woods? Well, not a whole lot. Went out and
1: checked the heifers and kind of worked through the heifers today and uh, waiting for it to rain like it's down, doing down in Princeton.
0: Yeah, so speaking of that, uh, Dr. Van Valen and, and Kevin, uh, how much rain have you all gotten over the last week in Princeton?
2: Enough. <laughs>
0: yeah, we, we, we get it so often we quit measuring.
2: Yeah, yeah, we don't have to measure down here. It just keeps coming. <laughs>
0: Well, um, I, I know last week, Dr. Bullock, you were uh, uh, crying for everybody to send you rain. So I'm hoping that you maybe got some up in your area.
3: Still crying, Jeff. But uh, it is better, but it's not where it needs to be yet.
0: Well, we got about three inches here uh, last week. No way. So, yes. I got uh,
3: just over an inch, all I've had, and since since the end of June.
0: Well, what? Wow! Welcome to uh, thunderstorms and and spotty rain. I'll take
1: it. Hopefully, you're rotationally so, grazing your mares.
0: <laughs> uh, I think he's pretty much set stocked. Pretty much, and
3: uh, there's not much grazing going on.
0: So, uh, Doctor Van Valen, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, where you're from and uh, where you went to uh, do your undergrad and, and grad school at.
2: Yep, I'm uh, originally from Bowling Green, Kentucky, did my undergrad at Western Kentucky University and then had the opportunity to go out to Virginia Tech to do a master's and uh, to Iowa State to do my PhD.
0: And then how long have you been back here in Kentucky?
2: Eight months.
0: Eight months.
2: Eight long COVID-filled months.
0: (laughs) Oh, we're not going to blame it on you. So, uh, Laurent, uh, Kevin, I I know you're joining Katie there. So um, you have also uh, uh, kind of a a different route of getting here to Kentucky. Tell us a little bit about where you're from and uh, how you got here to Kentucky.
4: Well, I'm I'm from a small town, Greenville Springs, Louisiana, which is about 20 miles northeast of Baton Rouge. So uh, I uh, went to grad school, undergrad, and, and got my master's at at, uh, LSU, and huh? coached the team there. Huh? LSU. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the current reigning, you know, national champions in football, and probably going to repeat. <laughs> uh, so, coached the judging team there, traveled through Kentucky a lot, and had some chances a chance to get hired up here back in way back in 1991 on a swine extension job and then a year later i had a chance to add beef to my responsibilities and moved down to princeton and uh, went to work for dr roy burris and gary parker who was a swine specialist at that time and it did swine pretty much 50 50 swine and beef work all the way up until well the swine independent producer uh part of the industry I guess around ninety eight to two thousand when a lot of our independent producers went out. Uh luckily beef was there and beef I was able to to just pretty much now do 95% beef work now.
0: Sounds like a, a diverse background and a way to get up here and start from swine to beef, but that's a uh, there's a lot of connectivity when you're looking at ultrasounding technology and adoption of that across both species
4: a lot of changes, a lot of changes, quick, quick changes in that swine industry and makes you wonder, I mean, we've seen a lot of changes in, in the cattle industry too, but I don't know, you know, I, I don't think it's going to go exactly the same way as quickly, but I tell you, that was, uh, it's mind boggling how fast that
0: swine industry came. I remember when I worked at the feed mill back in the, um, I think it was back in the late 80s and my boss told me, he said, watch this next year there will be almost 40 percent of the hogs sold on a contract basis and i said there's no way that's going to happen and look where it's at now yeah Yeah. less so uh dr anderson you you hail from the show me state so where did you uh go to school and and how'd you get here to kentucky
1: yeah i grew up in the great state of missouri there in the northeast corner um monroe city uh for anybody in uh, Missouri that's listening, uh, they might know Al Kennett, who was our extension agent up there uh, when I was growing up. My entire family went to MU, so I didn't have a choice. You go to MU, didn't even look anywhere else, got my uh, BS there, and while I was there, I worked in a couple of laboratories. Both of them were run by reproductive physiologists and uh, developed an interest in physiology and uh, went up to... Iowa State University, Dr. Van Valen, and worked for Steve Ford, who was uh, one of the more renowned swine reproductive physiologists at the time. Did a lot of embryo development work, a lot of embryo interaction work there, but uh, my heart was in cattle. I grew up on a diversified livestock and crop operation, and we had up to 350 cows and corn and beans and all that fun stuff. So I went to Ohio State University for my PhD with Mike Bay. dove hard into the beef cattle reproductive physiology. And when this job opened up in uh, June, well, I guess it opened up actually in December or whatever of 96, but got offered this job, took over here June 1st in 1997 and been a wildcat since.
0: Well, see, you had that cat then you back from Mizzou then too. It's just a little different one now. M I Z. ZoU, there you go. For Those that you don't know, I did my graduate work at uh, Missouri as well, just uh, a few years after Dr. Anderson. But we did have one faculty member that uh, we interacted with that overlapped, uh, and on the swine side, actually.
1: Yep. Well, Monty, uh, I managed a few farms as I was going through school, just to pay bills and so forth. And Monty Curley, I think, didn't he buy? He bought one of the farms that I managed back in the day. Oh, really? On Route Z. I'll
0: be darned. And last, but certainly not least, our uh, beachfront man. Well, I guess really not beachfront, but uh, grew up in central Florida and uh, kind of in the sandy area. But uh, Dr. Bullock, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and where you went to school and how you got here. Okay,
3: I guess the old timer goes last, I guess. Um, yep, grew up uh, loading watermelons and and... Punching cows, I guess, in Central Florida, a little town called Williston, and uh, like you say, it's the Sand Hills, which are basically just uh, ancient sand dunes um, that that we had our cattle and watermelons on. And uh, so, grew up 15 miles from Gainesville. So, of course, I went to the University of Florida. Not, uh, I had to get away from home. So, uh, ended up going to Auburn and got my undergraduate at Auburn and got out. And uh, there was no way. That i was ever going to graduate school i needed to get out and make a living and do what i wanted to do managing cattle so i worked for auburn for two years at their research station and um, two years of the real world decided uh, maybe i better go back and get some education also my uh future uh, would be future wife at the time was going to graduate school so i said well i better go to graduate school too so and uh, Kevin, I, my master's was working with pigs as well. So I guess we all have a tiny little bit of swine connection, maybe. Um, worked with Dr. Cooler's there at Auburn and got my master's uh, working with pigs, and then went to the University of Georgia and got my PhD working with um, really two of the renowned kind of animal breeders, beef breeders, uh, and Dr. Larry Beneshek and Keith Bertrand there at Georgia, who were. The instrumental in, in really national genetic evaluation and the production of EPDs that we all are so used to now, they played a big role in, in the development and implementation of that technology. So um, in 92, I was getting out. There was a position at Kentucky. Um, it was an extension position. I knew nothing about extension I uh, needed a research and teaching position. But uh, Dr. Bertrand said, well, it's, it's easier to find a position from a position, so use that as a stepping stone. Go to Kentucky and then find the job you really want and go there. So I did, and uh, now 28 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> so it's, it's been a good fit. Actually, Extension was the better fit for me. I have really enjoyed Extension and never regretted one minute coming to Kentucky and, and going in the Extension route. So um, been here a few years, Jeff.
0: That's a good thing. I, I guess, see, we didn't really save you uh, for last. Uh, I didn't share where I went uh, to school and where I'm from, so I guess we did save the best for last. <laughs> I grew up uh, southern Indiana, about 45 minutes north of Owensboro, about an hour uh, west of, of Louisville, kind of right before the ground starts getting flat over kind of in that Hendersonville area. It's still a, more of the rolling hills of the Ohio River Valley did my undergrad at Purdue. I was there, had an opportunity of uh, kind of like Les to work in a, a couple of research labs and do some undergraduate research. And then at that time had a good colleague of mine that was a grad student that I was working with, um, went on to do his uh, PhD at Missouri. And uh, as I was finishing up and looking to grad school, he put in a good word for me with uh, Dr. Curley. And I went on then to uh, do my master's and PhD there at at the University of Missouri. From there, my family and I moved up to Wisconsin. I took a position at uh, Wisconsin as a beef extension and uh, research position. And actually was doing a preconditioning program. And at the time, Kentucky's uh, CPH45 program was well-respected across the United States. And I brought Dr. Roy Burris up. Shout out to Uncle Roy, if you're listening, (laughs) and I took him up across the state and during our travels uh, as I was taking him back. But last uh, evening, he said, you know, we got a position open that you ought to look into. And as they say, the rest is history. So I moved uh, back down here with my family in 2008. So with that, uh, that kind of gives everybody a little overview of uh, our backgrounds and how we got here and, and why we're here today. Uh, so, Kevin, are, are you close at hand? Uh, what, what's the markets looking like this, this week?
4: Well, they're, they're up a little.
0: Though. I
4: guess there's good news in the marketplace after so many months of depressed prices. We're, uh, the, the official market report came out yesterday for last week, so we're always a week behind on this summary. But they the market reporters, KDA, Kentucky Department, I had called the market up uh, 2 to $3. And I, I got to digging around to see, you know, just with these prices improving a little bit, how this compares maybe back to the spring. And if looking at some market reports at the end of April, beginning of May, our light calves, our five weight type calves are up three to $5 from that time period. And and we all know, you know, an April, May period is when we usually have the high price for the for the year on these light calves. Well, is that kind of shows you how depressed the market was back in the in the spring.
2: And then on our yearlings, though, that's the really good news. Our yearlings have
4: really made some ground. Uh compared to back in May, our uh, our big cattle, our seven and eight weight cattle, they're ten to fifteen dollars higher than they were then. So we've got we got seven weights getting into the low forties, one forties now, you know, one owner low lot type deals. Uh eight weights are flirting with the one forties, they're in those high one thirties. So that's going to make some money for folks who either decided to hold those calves this spring, or who you know put calves in on these grazing programs. And I tell you, what's really good is, is there's a futures price. Uh, our August contracts like one forty-five to six. But what's what's really interesting that a lot of our listeners might be interested in doing at September to November futures board is 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 flirting with one fifty. So it's in that 149 range, and you know it may be a good time for folks who are going to be selling calves this fall to maybe look at some price risk protection. You know, for cattle they're going to sell in say November or December. You know, most of our spring, most of our guys are spring calvers, and that's when those calves will be going to park. So uh, that might be an opportunity that's presenting itself right now. So
0: that's a good point, and, and actually, the market uh, looking at the futures seem to be pretty pretty stable even out into the the first quarter of next year yeah it
4: it really does it looks it looks good i know that mid-year cattle report came out i guess it it came out kind of kind of neutral if you will neutral to the to the bullish side so um looks like we're you know we're consolidating the nation's cow herd so
0: well les it may be one of those things that perhaps you uh you might have hit this right with uh, looking at these heifers and putting these heifers out on some grass. I had some good advice.
1: Hey Kevin, what's the uh, what's the backlog? Uh, you know, the when the supply chain was interrupted, meat backed up. You know, I mean, they just had held cattle in the feed yards. And where are we at on the where are we at on that? I mean, are we getting caught up a little bit? Is it, are we still pretty slow? I mean, where and where are they looking? How long? will it take us to get back to normal so it's more of a uh a typical supply and demand deal
4: well i don't know the i don't know any numbers that would be a great question for a kenny burdine because he keeps his finger on the pulse all that i think we're catching up i mean this is talking we we do a program here called VAP, and we've got a feedlot version of that just just not to get into all the details of that right now but I do know the cattle that were trying, we were trying to get slaughtered in June, had to hold another six weeks just to get, just to get a spot on the on the in the packing house. So uh, they were six weeks back up. I know going into the first of July, that first of mid July, and I think we're catching up. I, I mean, I think things are getting fairly current now. But again, I don't, I don't know any any numbers, any details.
0: I can I can share little because I actually looked at some of that this morning and uh, not the specific numbers, but Kevin, you're exactly right. If you look at uh, our April and May marketings on fat cattle, it, it was really reduced uh, compared to normal and, and June numbers show us back up uh, close to quote unquote normal for 2018-19. I do know though, I, I read this morning that USDA did, did drop their marketing estimates by about 6,000 head from what they initially put out there. So I, I think we're catching back up, but we may still be seeing a little bit of slowing down of, of where we normally would be, but we're working through some of that backlog.
3: I'll tell you what, if you if you look at um, what's happening in the grocery store too, I mean, that's a telltale sign. I mean, everything's full now and I'm starting to see quite a bit of beef as, as a sale item again. And boy, we didn't see that for a long time, I saw uh, this morning, some six ninety nine uh ribeye, half a ribeye. So that's a little indicative that the supply and demand is getting back in check again.
2: Yeah, the limit uh, signs, the limit one or two packages are coming down.
3: So. Still had trouble getting toilet paper the other day, though. So uh, you can eat get your beef, but you just can't get any toilet paper. <laughs>
4: Sure somebody
0: to explain that one too, to <laughs> I don't know. As we go on, there's there's also been quite a bit of, of other meetings and and that uh, have been going on even with some of the challenges. And I know uh, NCBA just came off of their summer session and and released their long range plan. And we we had our beef extension uh, program here a couple of weeks ago. And uh, Dave Maples, the executive director of Uh, Kentucky Cattlemen's Association gave a quick overview of the uh, NCBA long-range plan and I thought maybe we just touch on some of that as it related to uh, some of our discussions that we had and some of the industry objectives maybe we'll just take them one at a time and uh, you know the first one that was listed on the list is grow the global demand for U.S. beef uh, by promoting bees' health and nutritional benefits and then also satisfying flavor and unparalleled safety. So uh, I think that is one of those maybe issues that we're going to have to continue to see uh, regain that export market. Uh, it has kind of picked up a little bit again, but it did take a bit of a, a tail off. Les, do you think that there's a lot of opportunity to uh, to grow that export market back to where it was?
1: I hope, I hope we can get Southeast Asia open back, opened up and rolling because uh, exports drive profitability. You know, our demand here in the United States has stayed pretty flat for the last, I don't know, what 10 years. And so our ability to capture additional market value really relies on our ability to export. And I I hope we can get some of that opened up. And I think that's all going to be COVID related. And as soon as the world can, Recover just a little bit, maybe get a vaccine out, get a little bit of normalcy going again. I think, I hope that we're able to get some some more beef moving across the the sea.
0: As I as I recall some numbers, I I thought we were somewhere around seven or eight percent down from about a year ago on exports and surprisingly some of the the larger markets um, were kind of South America markets Mexico Colombia uh, those markets were 30 to 40 percent off of where they were a year ago so maybe we can pull those back in uh, I, I thought it was interesting the comments about the um, the healthfulness benefits and dr Bullock what what would you think would need to be needed with regards to try and improve consumer acceptance from a A health slash nutritional standpoint
3: you know in my opinion jeff i think that that we're in a pretty good position right now i mean we've um you know it's kind of it's kind of that trade-off thing we went through periods where you know the ultra lean and everything was was the really what people were pushing but but i think that um the sacrifice there is the is the flavor side of things and so um it we are shooting much more back towards that higher quality type product, but uh, the health side of it is trying to get people to consume it at a more moderate rate, as opposed to I like that sixteen ounce uh, ribeye still, but um, that's probably not what I should be eating. And so, uh, so yeah, I, I I think that that how we're going to get to that endpoint on the beef side of things is like I say, somewhat on moderation, but but still keep the quality there so that we still give that great eating experience that beef is known for.
0: I think it's interesting too, even in the last 10 to 15 years, when we look at the percentage of cattle that are great in choice and prime and how much that has changed. And I don't want to give uh, Dare any more of a bigger head than he has right now with all that hair he's got, but um, it certainly maybe is a reflection of what genetics has done and and our tools with EPDs on. You know, it, it was not uncommon to be in that, you know, 50-60% choice range, uh, not much more than a decade ago, and, and now we're pushing, you know, 70-75% choice and higher. And there's even been some discussion of what are we going to do if we don't have any select. Right.
3: Yeah, and, and that's a, that's probably a good position to be in because I think we can adjust those markets. Um, it is kind of funny because there was a period, I can't remember now exactly when it was, Jeff, but um, but it, it was one week, a couple of years ago, that it actually flipped for, for just a week where selects actually were selling higher than choices because of that very thing. The orders were out there for the select and they just couldn't get the orders filled. And it was a very unusual situation. but. But I don't see that as a problem. <laughs> I think that uh, in the end, the consumers are going to keep demanding that choice. And really, we've moved the bar up. We're we're really talking when you're talking about most of these certified programs, you're up or two thirds choice, and and even the prime, you're seeing a lot more prime in grocery stores and in white tablecloth restaurants. And so um, I, I, that that definitely is the trend.
0: Number two uh, industry objective listed was to improve industry-wide profitability by expanding our processing capacity and developing improved value capture models. And uh, I know that certainly was a hot topic. Uh, Katie, you led the discussion on the second night of our program and uh, seemed like a lot of folks were really interested in trying to expand capacity and part of that's driven by COVID. And I think you all have uh, maybe somebody looking at expanding a plant down in your area or on that side of the state as well, don't you?
2: Uh, Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, One of our local plants here, I think, is looking at expanding actually a couple of them really in this neck of the woods, not within about a 30-minute drive here of our station in Princeton. And so, you know, again, I think it's this, this note of, of COVID, you know, really making people think about where they're purchasing their beef and where it's coming from and where they were able to find it at that time. And so I think there's some demand from the consumers locally to be able to find that local product. That's sort of driven some of the excitement in our industry about how we can reach that need.
0: I've got an email today from one of the agents and um, unless you've worked with um, uh, this gentleman and and he was doing some finishing cattle and kind of had Things uh, on a on a breeding side spread out and was marketing a, you know a few head weekly and uh, the agent sent me uh, something back today that said that producer now is marketing almost ten head direct a week uh, on local beef sales where that uh, he was trying to put pot loads together finished cattle at one time so that that has certainly changed that market outlook for him and uh, let's, I don't know how we're sitting in an area close to Lexington and Cincinnati, and you know everybody that I've talked to seems like they they can't finish or, or get a beef finished quick enough for the demand that they've had. Have you heard the same thing?
1: Tom, uh, one of the unusual things about uh, working with that producer was, you know, we maintained a long calving season on purpose. Um, Tom produces a ton of feed and at once a constant supply of fat cattle, and so he always had something ready to go. And so then when the demand came in, he had his cattle ready and they were actually finished. You know, I mean, he knows how to finish cattle. And then his key, the key he made was he made a deal with a local processing guy and he's able to get in there. He's, you know, he's kept that guy supplied and and processor has kept spaces open for him. And that's really been the key because a lot of people are, you know, I mean, it's July, August. Of next year, before a lot of these processing plants are having openings right now, so he kind of got lucky in some of the some of the things that he did, but he was also positioned perfectly to be able to take advantage of it because of his unusual production scheme.
3: Hey Jeff, I just want to jump in real quick, I because there's been so much excitement over the local beef, and and I'm a proponent of local beef. Don't get me wrong, but. Um, I think that people getting into it, though, really need to understand that it brings in a huge marketing effort on their part in, in a lot of cases, particularly if you're selling uh, halves or quarters or things like that, that um, that people don't need to go into it blindly, that, that they do need to go in with their eyes open and check into it thoroughly before kind of diving into that that arena
0: you know that's a really good point and one of those things i got a little bit concerned about too was the shortage of freezers um there there was a rush on freezers too just you know it, it became to the point that you couldn't just walk into a local uh, store and find a freezer to put meat in so i think that's eased up a little bit but everybody needs to be aware of that and not everybody's going to have a deep freezer to take a half or a whole beef that you, know, you may have to be selling bundles of 20 to 50-pound bundles so that will fit in the freezer. And that's a huge – takes a lot of customers to sell 500 pounds of beef, 20 pounds a pack.
2: Yeah, the uh, freezer shortage is still a thing. I was looking for one the other day as we moved into our new house, so it's it's still a thing. So.
3: but you know that might be a you know, positive thing for the for the local beef market. the fact that a lot of people did buy freezers during this time period and um you know that because because at least now they don't have that excuse that may actually be a positive
0: Well I know that uh, mr. Beeler made a uh, comment as well on our program that they've invested heavily in expanding some of the processing in the state and so um uh, Maybe we'll see that uh, in the next uh, six to eight months, expanding the opportunities for folks to get beef processed a little quicker. One of the other comments industry objective was uh, to intensify efforts in researching, improving, and communicating U.S. beef industry sustainability. So who wants to take the stab at defining sustainability for
3: us? I'm going to jump in. I want the first shot, and then everybody else can add on. Got to have an economic component. All right, so because you can't be sustainable if you can't be economic. Now that was that's the easy one, so you guys tackle the hard part.
2: <laughs> Finding a balance between economic and environmental sustainability, because environmental sustainability is important if we don't have the ground to produce our crops and produce the cattle that we need. It's gonna be hard to stay in business that way too.
1: It's all economics, man.
2: That one's <laughs> well, already been less. <laughs> Well, I feel like I'm back in
0: class, you know where, <laughs> I'm getting you ready. class starts Monday. <laughs> I do think that that's one of those that the industry um uh you know they are considering all of them right economics uh land resources, labor resources and and so that I think that's gonna continue. I also think that um, as we move forward, there's certainly gonna be additional technology that will come along that is going to certainly help move us that way. You hear about it in bits and pieces on, you know, alternative energy sources and, you know, even, even the work that Les that you and Katie and and uh, others are doing on the cow manager, just trying to help our reproductive efficiency. Uh, that's going to improve sustainability by improving uh, the number of cows that hopefully get bred and get rid of the, the cows maybe that are uh, not as productive.
3: I I think that's a good point, Jeff, because I I think that that sometimes we look at those as you know butting heads, the economic part versus the environmental sustainability, but they really don't. If you think about things like efficiency, we need efficiency for both sides. The more efficient we are, the more money you make, the more efficient we are, the better it is for the environment because we're running so fewer cows to produce more beef today than we ever have. And so um, the end game, they they do go hand in hand for a lot of these practices that we're recommending. So uh, we joke about it, but uh, but we are just as committed to the environmental side as we are the economic side because they, they do play together.
0: Absolutely. Number four in industry objective was to make traceability a reality in the U.S. beef industry. Uh, that has certainly been one of those that has been here and there. And I remember when I was uh, up north and uh, they made it mandatory and uh, then it, it went back to uh, non-mandatory. But at the time uh, we thought USDA was gonna mandate that uh, from a health tracking standpoint and disease tracking, but um, they backed off of that and, and said it needed to be a pull through from the industry. And I think we're at a situation right now where maybe the industry is going to try and pull that through less that you, you've worked quite a bit now with the technology and, and Katie, you too on the cow manager. Uh, how much are we in a better position today with the technology than we were say 15 years ago?
1: Uh, we have more technology. Are we in a better place with technology? I'm not a hundred percent sure about that. I'm a hundred percent confident that traceability in all realms of the cattle industry is a vital necessity to protecting our industry from massive disease. I mean, right now, you know, in my opinion, we're one mad cow disease case away from going, you know, a 30 cent drop in the market when we can't afford a 30 cent drop in the market. And traceability for me is something that, it's a must for the industry, and 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 I'm glad to see that NCBA is uh, is has it as one of those four main industry objectives because it's just a vital component to be able to quickly and accurately trace any sort of disease issue that pops up in the in the U.S. And you know the the production aspects of the technology are one thing, but the the, the disease traceability to me is is what needs
0: Help me out here, the um, ultra-high-frequency technology that's out there today, you can read at a larger distance. When I was spec testing some of the equipment that some of the manufacturers were looking at, there was some a bit of concern at the, the speed at which uh, our markets work, and you might have three or four animals in the antenna field, and they would cancel each other out, and you'd get the, a misread. Or, or no read. But I think that technology with the ultra high frequency is going to eliminate that challenge. So I do think that there's been improvements in the technology. And Katie, do you feel like that with the other software packages and that that can help on the management side that that may help uh, this become more of a reality now?
2: Yeah, you know, I think by you're kind of Killing two birds with one stone in that in that sense. If you can pop a another tag on there that can can help the producer out and solve this traceability issue, you know maybe we can actually get things adopted and and get this process rolling. But you know I think it's it's a it's a daunting process and how we all work together to get it done. I think that's probably the biggest challenge uh, to getting it done to, to date.
0: Kevin, you were involved quite a bit in uh, CPH sales that use the RFID tags, and they're still re- are they still required?
4: No, they're not. Uh, and I was going <clears> to <throat> jump in here. That yeah, but back in the we call it the PVP days when we were doing the prospect process verified programs there with CPH. Uh, I guess it was about a four or five year period, maybe longer. Uh, that we did do that. We were all chasing that Japanese premium that was at the time, that's what, what everyone was was trying to get that extra thirty dollars ahead. The problem back then, there were two things that that premium really never filtered back down to the cow calf level. And then also we're talking about technology. The technology wasn't quite there, I think, to be able to work these cattle at the speed of during the market channels in our marketing channels. so, you know, we would bring calves in and run them through these scanners, and the number of misreads were just, you know, it was it was a chore. So we ended up, you know, in some cases we were actually had someone set up on a catwalk, stick reading cattle in on the scale as opposed to just trying to do the walk-through readers because we were we weren't getting uh, an accurate enough read. The good thing about all that, we were probably ahead of our time trying to, you know, jump into that. But that's kind of what we're here for, I think, is to try things, you know? And uh, I think we learned a lot. I think, at, at the end of the day, I think it's either gonna be driven by the industry or a political mandate. And I think we can see over the years, nobody's wanting to stick their neck out on the, on the from a politician standpoint, whether you know right or left, whoever's in charge, you're not gonna, neither one is is willing to make that mandate. To go a national id program and so you know it's, it's probably going to have to be industry driven but I, I'm, I'm like Les, you know you talk about mad cow or, or what about foot and mouth you know get a foot and mouth break swine can spread it probably better than any animal and and we've got trucks going between north carolina and iowa all the time so uh we get mad you know get a foot and mouth disease in the country and we've got a problem too so it's uh, I think it's needed. Who's going to do it? You know, who's going to
3: mandate it and make it work, you know? Well, uh, here's the thing, Kevin, everybody complains about the government doing it and even industry doing it or being forced by retailers and all, but I'm going to say right here right now that we're all better off if we get it mandated for one of those than if we get foot and mouth and it becomes a reality because of a disaster like that. Cause uh, mad cow disease would be a blessing compared to getting a foot and mouth outbreak. Hey, look at right. look at what's happened with COVID. I mean, look at the that's in humans and all the money that's been spent and we can't get control of it. But if something like this happens in the beef industry, we're in trouble. So we need to get it we need to get a handle on it sooner rather than later.
0: I agree with you, Dare, that if we can be proactive rather than reactive, that things always seem to go from an implementation standpoint, much smoother. Absolutely. Well, I think we're getting close to um, wrapping up. That was the the last industry objective uh, on NCBA's long range plan. Uh, I certainly want to thank all of you for joining today. And uh, this is our inaugural podcast. We'll see how this is received, but we'll plan on trying to do one of these every two weeks and discuss uh, some of the current news and dive into some topics. And I believe, um, uh, the next session and I believe, Kevin, do I have you listed coming in to talk a little bit more about PVAP? Ah, I can do it. Sounds good. Well, everybody, thanks for joining. And, uh, we look forward to hearing feedback from you on, uh, uh, the new, uh, UK beef, IRM beef bits podcast. Send us any, uh, encouraging criticisms that uh, we can take and make this program a little bit better.